So Tetanus Man is a really cool story I have to tell you about from Haiti. Uh, back in 2010, I did a relief work in Haiti about four to six weeks after the earthquake. And much of that involved sort of stabilizing the country from a preventative healthcare standpoint. And so in any natural disaster, you always worry about situations like this happening in developing countries because they don't have high vaccination rates and a lot of times they're not vaccinated at all. And when people start moving out of their homes to live in dwellings that are makeshift or without running water or proper infrastructure, they're at even higher risk for developing communicable diseases. So Tetanus Man is a gentleman who came in, his name was Laurent, and he came in pretty early on in my stint in Haiti. And he has all of the symptoms and signs of tetanus. Tetanus is the classic zombie disease. People will lay still and motionless because they can't move their bodies. And then in response to loud sensory stimuli, become incredibly animated. And it's really creepy and weird. And so this poor gentleman, Laurent, comes in. He's able to talk, but he's talking in a low voice. He's got a clenched jaw. His muscles don't really work on command, but then twitch to sensory stimuli. And the idea behind treating tetanus once it does take place is antibiotics to kill the tetanus bacteria, which is really simple to do. But the tetanus toxin lingers in the body for a while. And so what we do in America, although I've never seen a case of tetanus here, is we just manage people conservatively. We support them with nutrition through a feeding tube, and if needed, because they can no longer breathe on their own, we support their breathing with mechanical ventilation or machine. Now, that wasn't an option for this gentleman because we're in Haiti in a makeshift ICU and we have no ventilators, let alone electricity more than four or five hours of the day, depending on the generator and the amount of gas we have. So Laurent was admitted to my service and I was responsible for him for about maybe 10, 12 days. And during that time, I watched him gradually decline. His ability to phonate or verbalize, his ability to maintain his posture or raise an arm became worse and worse. Really scary to see someone just kind of wither away because they have no control of their muscles. And at times he would also get super tense because the lights were turned on or because there was a loud sound and you'd see him sort of shake in bed in this sort of really kind of zombie, clonicky kind of jerky movement that was really uncomfortable for him to sustain but also to watch. Long story short is this gentleman was not doing well and he was heading towards the point where he was going to need some kind of respiratory assistance to be able to breathe. And I found myself making a decision between which of my patients should get oxygen and which shouldn't. I knew he absolutely needed oxygen, um, and I could tell that from his oxygen saturation, but I also had other patients who needed oxygen as well. And it's a really difficult decision to make. Who do you give oxygen to? Who don't you give it to? We were given one sort of six-foot-tall oxygen canister per week, and it weighed about 600 pounds, and I found myself dragging it across this tile floor from patient to patient, and it, it would always leave these horrible scratch marks all across the, the tile. And we even tried, I sat with the nurses, how can we split up the oxygen? We tried doing what's called a Christmas tree, which is just a connector that will allow sort of split-offs of oxygen, but that didn't deliver enough oxygen to anyone, so no one was getting oxygen with the Christmas tree in place. So we really had to just make a choice who was getting the oxygen, and for me, he was the best candidate for several reasons. One, because he was young and had a good chance of overcoming the tetanus. And two, University of Pennsylvania was interested in taking him. And this goes back to sort of the politics and media behind international natural disaster crises. And a lot of hospitals want to do good and volunteer their services, but don't necessarily have the means to do it 
in country. And so the uh, idea behind that was UPenn was going to provide a private jet and we were going to transfer this gentleman to the University of Pennsylvania hospital system where they would continue to manage him and support him and possibly even uh, put him on a breathing machine if he needed it and then get him back to Haiti thereafter. And with their interest peaked in his case in particular, meant that if I could keep him alive until the paperwork and the politics and the administrative red tape behind that could get settled out, then we would be able to transfer him. And then he'd live. There was no doubt in my mind that he'd live if I could keep him alive till then. So what ultimately ended up happening was UPenn did actually accept this man. And they had a private jet show up at the airport in Port-au-Prince and flew him the three and a half hour flight to Pennsylvania, which again, is so difficult to understand that a third world developing country in a complete natural disaster is only three and a half hours from Philadelphia. I mean, that is so hard to wrap my head around that in three and a half hours, this man's gonna be in one of the top 10 hospitals in the world, let alone in America, receiving treatment. So really, Tetanus Man stands out as a testament to the goodwill of not only hospitals and American physicians who are willing to pay the price and uh, ultimately uh, make room for people, but really about distribution of resources and really the fairness involved in doing that, but also the struggle and how difficult emotionally it can be to actually make those decisions.